0: Genesis chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Let's pray together.
1: Father, it is so sweet to worship your great and glorious name. I praise you for the last half an hour or so, lifting your name high. Lord, the thought of dancing on the streets that are golden and joining in the song with every tribe and tongue and people and nation, Lord, just makes my heart rejoice. And I pray, Lord, that... The fruit of a sermon like this and a week that's devoted to missions would produce in us rejoicing hearts at the thought of contributing to your global purpose to raise praise from every tongue and tribe and people and nation that your name might be glorious in all of the earth. So Father, I pray that you would be with us now as you already have been. You are zealously committed to upholding your power upholding your excellence and displaying it throughout the entire earth. And therefore, we take great confidence in going forth in that step because we know that you are aiding it. Lord, you are working towards this great end, and therefore, we just want in. We want to join in. We want to contribute to this great cause. We want to see the nations bow down. So I pray, Lord, that you would empower me now, pray that you would help me to preach your word, and I pray that the word would be attended by the Holy Spirit, and I ask that it would create the kind of believers in this church and the kind of church that would honor you over the face of all the earth. So be with us now, I pray, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, I ask all these things. Amen. For our time this morning, I want to start off by giving you maybe a little bit of a background as to how Missions Week came to land on this particular week. The bulk of my sermon, well, all of it, is going to be devoted to why we do missions or why we should be committed to missions. But I just want to give you a little bit of a background as to why it was born on this particular week. Out of all the weeks of the year that we could choose to do Missions Week, there is a reason why we decided to do it on this particular week. Last week, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Easter. This week, we're diving headfirst into missions, and we're tackling that one. This Sunday, Wednesday night, and then next Sunday, Pastor Charlie's going to be bringing the message again on the theme of missions. So we're going to hit this one hard, and there are two reasons that I want to give as to how this week was born, this particular week. Number one, the Great Commission. Notice when Jesus makes this famous statement all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And this is right after his resurrection from the dead, before he goes and ascends to the Father on high. And out of all the things that he could have possibly said in that time period, what he says is, be missionaries. So that's one reason. A second reason is that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is a gospel-spreading power. the gospel-advancing power. Look at Peter. Before Peter was, or before Jesus was resurrected from the dead, before he was even crucified, Peter denies Jesus, one of his very own. Peter was one of the closest disciples to Jesus, and he denies him three times. He's timid. And then, look at the same Peter, the, this disciple, in the book of Acts, which records... By the way, the spread of the gospel into all of the nations from the Jews into the Gentiles. Against command to preach the gospel, Peter does so. And when his disciples are against the council, this is what he says in Acts 5. We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. So look at the impact. What's the night and day difference? How do you account for that? How does Peter go from being totally timid and denying Jesus to preaching him and proclaiming him even when they say you cannot do it? It's illegal to do so. And I think it's the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. After he ascended on high, he sent the Holy Spirit. And what's so interesting is that it seems almost like Jesus was nearer and dearer to Peter when he was gone. Then when he was even with them, when Peter was with Jesus, he denied him. And when Jesus left to go into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit and there was a passion there and a reality there that kept him from saying, no, I, I can't. I can't deny Jesus. I must go and proclaim his name. And therefore, I say, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to finish the work that he had started on the earth, it is a or the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to send the Spirit. It's meant to empower people to proclaim and preach the gospel in all the earth, to spread it. So that's why the two reasons, the theological reasons as to why we decided to do missions week this particular week. So my goal this morning is to lay out a theological foundation as to why missions is an essential pursuit for Christians and the church. That's my goal. I want to give some theological foundation, bedrock, and prove that if you are a Christian, if you are a worshiper of God, that missions, worldwide evangelization of all peoples, tongues and tribes and nations, must be an essential pursuit of the church and for individual Christians. And to stir maybe into your hearts here, I want to ask a question of all of us. And again, I just want this to kind of linger as we talk about the theology of missions. The question is, are you growing in your commitment and passion to see God exalted in all the earth. Is that a growing commitment and is that a growing passion in you? To see God lifted high, not only in Elk River, but in all the earth. That's the question that I, I just want to, to kind of put, plant in your hearts right now and let that stir. And I think that it must be because... This is the cause that we were saved for. This is God's agenda. And when Christ shed his blood to bring us into the family, we take on the family values, so to speak. We take on the values of the Father. And because it is God's main objective to work through the world and lift up his great and glorious name, I argue that it must also mark us as Christians too. So... We're going to go from there. And just for clarification, I also want to add this. I'm going to quote John Piper here because I'm heavily influenced by John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says in his book, missions exist because worship doesn't. And worship of God is the ultimate goal of God and the church. Let me say that again. The worship of God is the ultimate goal of God and, therefore, the church. When we all get to heaven, missions will not be needed because we'll all be saved. But worship will continue to increase and go forward. That will be our eternal lot in heaven, the worship of God. So if we are truly worshipers of God, the fruit of it will spill over into an increased desire to see God exalted in all the nations and to see all the nations come to worship and enjoy the glory of God. So when I talk about missions this morning, I'm talking about the pursuit of making worshipers of the Almighty God in every tongue and tribe and people and nation over the face of the earth. So let's go to our text Genesis 11, 1 through 9. This is commonly known as the Tower of Babel. If we were to teach this in a children's class, we would probably call it the Tower of Babel. And hopefully, we will see some things in this passage this morning that will help us to see, ah, this is a very significant turning point in God's redemptive plan. Because it is that. And I hope that we will see that. And not only that, but the wisdom of God and the plan and the purpose of God in all the earth. So let's look at some passages here. We're not going to read the whole thing. Verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same word. So this is where we're coming in here. And then the people migrate from the east. And then in verse 4, they said to each other, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, I don't know exactly how making a name for themselves will keep them from being dispersed over the whole earth. They said, come, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. Somehow those two things are related. I'll let you figure that out. But for now, what I want you guys to know is that, number one, they are trying to make a name for themselves. And number two, they do not want to be dispersed over the whole earth. They're working against that. They don't want that. And then, as the story goes, they progress, they make progress on the tower, they're building up, they're gaining power, God sees what's going on, and he says, this is a problem. So he comes down, and he decides to confuse the nations, and then in verse 8, confuse the language, verse 8, the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. So there it's done. In verse 9, it reiterates that, and it's called Babel. So everything that they were working against happened. They were working against being dispersed over the whole face of the earth. God comes down, and he does that to them. He disperses them over the whole earth. So the question now that I want to ask is, why did God disperse them over the face of the whole earth? Apparently, they were doing something that was problematic. Apparently, they were doing something that was problematic enough to where it was necessary. It was the necessary action for God to take. And that necessary action for God to take was we must disperse them. So why was what they were doing so problematic? And number two, why was it the necessary action of God to disperse them? Why was that the necessary action of God? And to answer that, I want to take you back to Genesis 1. So if you guys would turn back to Genesis 1 with me, what I hope to do here is to give some background. going to see God's original intent in creation, and his purpose for human beings. And when we begin to see what his original intent in creation was, and when we begin to see what God's original purpose for human beings was, I think we will start to see more and more why what was going on in Genesis 11, why it was so problematic and even evil, and why God responded the way he did. So Genesis 1, to 28. And God said, Let us make man in our image. and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So now you can probably see, you can kind of see what's going on here. The summary of that is God made people in his own image to perceive his excellence, to perceive his glory as an act of worship in everything that they pursued. So he created the earth. Not only did he create people, but before that he created the earth as an outward expression of his glory so that his glory would be tangible. And he made man with the ability to perceive that glory and he told them, go and spread that glory over the whole face of the earth. And I get this from verse 28 that says, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. It was said, that the Garden of Eden was one plot of land on the earth that perfectly reflected the order of God, the perfect glory of God. And what man was supposed to do, Adam and Eve, was they were supposed to perceive the greatness of God and institute that perfect order over the whole face of the earth until the borders of Eden would cover the whole entire earth so that God's glory would be great not only in Eden but over the whole face of the earth. And not only that, but they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply so that there would be people with the knowledge of the glory of God enjoying the glory of God in all the earth. So God's praise would be filled all throughout the earth. That's Genesis 1. And that's why I think that's the mandate of all mankind. That's the reason why we exist. That is the reason why you exist. It's to enjoy God and to spread his glory in all of the things that you do. And now you guys can probably put this together. Genesis 1 meets Genesis 11, and you see there's a problem. When we apply this, you can actually see that what's going on in Genesis 11, the people are actually in rebellion when they're trying to make a name for themselves. And everything that they're undertaking in Genesis 11 is directly antithetical to everything God had prescribed and intended for human beings. God wants to make his name great in all the earth, and the people are saying, come, let's make a name great for ourselves. God wants to spread people into all the earth so that they will enjoy him in all the earth and worship him in all the earth. And they're saying, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. They're working against God's plan in every single way. So you can see why God acts the way that he does, and and you can see why it's so problematic. Now, at this point in the message, what I would like to do is spend some time developing this idea from other places throughout the Bible that it is actually God's intended purpose to, in his greatest passion, to uphold his greatness and manifest his glory in all the earth. So I just want to prove this from other places in the Bible, that this is God's greatest intention. This is God's greatest passion. So let's look at Habakkuk 2.14. I think we have it up on the screen. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Psalm eight one and 9, the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm ends with this statement, this proclamation. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 57, 5 and 11 be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In Psalm seventy-two, nineteen, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And not only is it God's passion to uphold his glory, uphold his greatness, uphold his great worth in all of the earth, But I'm also going to argue that man's deepest function and the reason why man exists in the first place is to enjoy God. Or to say it another way, the whole reason why peoples exist, we were made to enjoy God. That's the reason why God made us. Psalm, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That's the reason why we exist. And if you guys would take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 67, we're going to read that one in just a minute. But Psalm 117.1. Here's the command. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. It means people everywhere. You were created to... Praise the glory of God, so praise the Lord. Extol him, all peoples. That's the cry of the psalmists. Now Psalm 67, let's read this one together. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So this little small passage, this chapter in the Bible is replete with the plea to let the peoples praise God. What they're saying here, this plea is that God's way would be known on the earth. That's the plea of the psalmist here. Let your name be known. Let your way be known in all of the earth. And secondly, let the peoples, let everybody on the face of the earth praise you. Let them praise you. To put it another way, the Westminster Catechism, the first question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the chief end of man. And I'm going to do what John Piper did in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. You can read this for yourself. He takes that and he applies it to God. What is the chief end of God? The answer the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. That's the chief end of God. And thus, our chief end and God's chief end is one and the same. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever precisely because the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. Now, at this point in the message, I just want to talk about God-centeredness. Perhaps you guys have come in here and you've heard the the buzzword God-centered. We're God-centered at this church. And uh, you might think that that means, well, we do expository preaching versus uh, topical type preaching. So instead of taking an idea of man and maybe using the Bible obscurely to promote that idea and the agenda of man, what we're going to do is, uh, you know, just, uh, just promote the idea of man using the Bible. Instead... No, we're going to do exegetical preaching, which means, or expository preaching, and we just go through the Bible and hear what God has to say to us, and we learn what it says about God. And that's what God-centered means. And that's on the right path, but that's not all that it means to be God-centered. Or you might think that it means that in our Sunday school classes or when we do Bible studies and things like that, we don't land on the point and the climax of our point isn't Jesus shares his lunch. Or we don't do, like, you know, how to become a better person and things like that. That's not the goal of our teaching, but rather it focuses us on God. And again, that's on the right path again, but that's not a sufficient idea of way or how we understand what it means to be God-centered. When we talk about God-centered and what it means to be God-centered, what we're talking about, we're asserting something about the nature of God himself and that God is God-centered, it means that the supreme affection of God in his heart is for himself. That is what it means to be God-centered. We're talking about the God-centeredness of God himself. That his supreme objective in all the earth is to uphold his worth and to make it known. And so thus, it is a theological understanding that permeates the way that we understand everything. It's a theological understanding that permeates the way that we make sense of All reality—that everything is working for this thing, for this great cause—and that is that God is supremely committed to valuing Himself and making Himself known on the earth for all peoples to enjoy Him. So you might say to me at this point, "Hmm, that's hmm, that's that's not the background I come from. That might not be the way that I heard it put. Um, I thought that the chief end of God was to love us." I thought that the chief end of God was to love sinners and to lavish his blessing on us. That's what I was brought up thinking. And I would say, that's not the chief end of God. The chief end of God, again, is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. Now, you might come back to me again and say, well, you know, if I met somebody that came up to me and said, my personal mission statement is to upholds my greatness so that everybody that I come across will say, wow, how great you are, and they will enjoy me, you would say, that is an arrogant person. That is selfishness. That's what we call selfishness. And that sounds like a problem. And, and even 1 Corinthians 13.5 in the NASB says, love seeks not its own. So how can you say that God seeks his own as his ultimate goal in all of reality? And I would say that is true for men. That is the command that is given to men. And it is true for men to follow that. Love seeks not its own. But God is not a creature, and he is not a sinful creature at that. He is totally separate from mankind. In fact, he is holy. And therefore, God is infinite in his worth. He is infinite in his love. He is infinite in his wisdom. He's infinite in his faithfulness. He's infinite in his mercy and infinite in his grace. And he's infinite in his power. And therefore, what I'm saying here is for God to be supremely committed to himself, God's self-exaltation is his deepest expression of love for us. When God seeks His own above all other things, that is the best way that He can love a people who were made to enjoy the greatness and the glory of God. So, for God to be self-committed is actually the deepest way that He can love us as people. So, if it is God's, or if if God's greatness is truly the source of our deepest happiness, then it would be necessary in loving. For his glory to be upheld and dwell, not only in one place of the earth, but in all of the earth for all peoples to enjoy. Now imagine you had the cure for AIDS. What if you had the cure for AIDS and only Elk River knew about it? Would that be right? It wouldn't be right. It would only be right if that cure for AIDS got into all the earth so that all peoples everywhere could benefit from it. Nothing less would be loving. And therefore, for God, he is the greatest treasure that man can have. And the only way for him to be perfectly loving is for him to uphold that treasure and that value for all people in all the earth to enjoy and benefit from. So that's why I say the self-exaltation of God is his deepest expression of love for us. I got this bag here, McDonald's. A month ago we were uh is it up there? Yeah, you guys can kind of see it. Good thing I brought the bag. A month ago about we were traveling um uh through New York. My wife and I took a little trip and um, we wound up eating at McDonald's a lot, but praise God I, I made it through. And uh <laughs> and anyway I saw on the bag here something that I thought was uh really a good illustration. This girl here is blowing bubbles. And these bubbles, um, I think, are are representing little globes. I think that's the, that's the idea they're trying to, to convey. And I say that because it has the words, I'm loving it. That's their slogan, written in all different languages. So I'm getting the impression that this isn't really a bubble. This is actually a globe. And um, And the reason why I bring this here is because I think I really want to stress this point that God is loving by zealously committing himself to upholding his great glory in all the earth. And if it's troubling for you that um, God is passionate about upholding his own excellence and spreading it to the end of the world, it shouldn't be because McDonald's is actually on the same mission. And we don't get bent out of shape about that. McDonald's and God are both zealously committed to upholding and spreading their great name and reputation throughout the entire earth so that they will be treasured by every tribe and tongue. No pun intended. <laughs> so, there is a major difference, however. McDonald's is not infinitely valuable or satisfying. God is. Which is why it really isn't essential that McDonald's succeed in their conquest to dominate the world. It's not essential that they get praise, I'm loving it, from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. But it is necessary for God to do that. It is necessary that God get praise and worship from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. If God is going to be truly loving, it is right that he zealously commit himself to spreading his great name through all the earth for the happy worship of all peoples everywhere. So I will say again, because God is committed to this glory in all the earth, we must be too. And this is why I I say in Genesis 11 that when the people were making a name for themselves and refusing to be dispersed over the earth, they were rebelling They were an outright rebellion to God. They were disobedient. So this is why Christians must be growing in their commitment and passion to see all the nations become worshipers of God. We must be growing in our commitment and passion to see God exalted in all the earth. We must be. That's the reason why we are saved, is to join in that great cause. By doing missions as worshipers of God... We're merely putting ourselves in line with what God has been doing since the very start. That's the whole purpose of the Bible. God creating a people to enjoy him and worship him and him spreading his glory throughout the entire earth. If you read Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that's the essential flow of the Bible. Is God creating a people for his own praise and glory so that he will manifest his glory in all the earth and it will be fuller and fuller and fuller. That's the whole, I think, flow of the Bible. So we go back to Genesis 11, and I would like to draw out one more point from this passage here, and namely, the wisdom of God in confusing the languages. There is a wisdom in God confusing the languages, and I think that there's more that's going on here rather than just changing the language so that people can't understand each other. But after God confuses the languages in Genesis 11, what happens is that every people group on the planet has different tastes. They have different traditions. They have different cultural values. They have different strengths. They have different likes and different dislikes. They have different weaknesses. And this is, like I said before, I alluded to this, I think that there's maybe a little bit more going on to God confusing the languages than just changing their actual language. I think it is changing their cultural values and their way of life so that not only can they not talk to each other, but because of their differences and their cultural differences, they can't agree and they can't get along anymore. And we see that throughout the nations, how separate different people groups are, even within different countries, because they have different values. They have different way of doing things. And they seem weird to each other. So I think that is... The wisdom of God, and I say that it is the wisdom of God because of this bag. Again, I'm going to point you back to the bag. There's something deeper going on here. McDonald's is making a deeper, more profound statement. And I think they're wise for doing it. But what they're saying here, by putting the phrase, I'm loving it, in all these different languages is that they are saying we are the best fast food, if not the best restaurant in all the world. You know why? Because we're enjoyed by all the world. This bag here proves that McDonald's is not just an American phenomenon enjoyed by 5% of the world's population and one set of cultural values, but they're saying our goodness is such that transcends all of the different diversities on the face of the world. And there is one taste above all other tastes enjoyed by all the different differences and values among the nations and it is McDonald's I'm loving it me and Kanta So McDonald's however will have its end they will not be enjoyed by every tongue and tribe and people and nation Jesus Christ will have no limit And this is why I say it was wise for God to spread out the nations and confuse the language and make cultural differences because Jesus Christ will be proven to be massively more glorious, not in comparison to McDonald's, but more glorious than he could have been if there was only one cultural value that distinguished the whole entire human race. When Jesus Christ, and there will be a day when Christ will be proven to be more glorious because he is embraced and cherished by all of these peoples on the face of the earth. He will be embraced and cherished not just by Americans or one tribe out there somewhere, but he will be embraced and cherished by every people group on the face of the earth. There is one thing that all tribes, all tongues, all peoples, all nations will agree on. And that is that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is one thing above all other things that every people group on the face of the earth will agree that is worth treasuring above all other things. And that is Jesus Christ. And that's why I said that it was a wisdom for God to spread out the nations and create different cultural-type values because when people who can't agree on anything else agree that Jesus is worthy, that he's valuable, that makes him look even more glorious. And that manifests the glory of God in all the earth when he is embraced by all the inhabitants of the earth all over the earth. So here we are right now, March 2008. And we have a lot of work left before us. You guys can can look at these displays. I was looking at them, and it talks about unreached people groups in the earth. An unreached people group is a people group that doesn't have people among it worshiping Christ, treasuring Christ. And I do pray, I really do hope, and I want to urge you guys to come on Wednesday night and pray with us for the nations, and get our minds around, and get ourselves immersed into what's going on throughout the earth. It seems like an overwhelming task. It does. You can look at the joshuaproject.com or .net or whatever it is, and you can pull up all of the unreached people groups, and it's just, and that's just one country, India. And then it's just all over. But there is hope, and it's because God is for this. God is for this. We've been looking at Genesis 128 as a mandate. And that is the command. This is why you exist. Go do this. But I also want to point you back to Genesis 128 now. And I want to suggest to you that it is actually a promise as well. And the reason why I say it's a promise is because before God tells man to do anything, this is what he says. And he blessed them and said to them, before God gives them the command to fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the earth, he blesses them in their work, which means that the work that man was supposed to do has God's blessing resting on it before they were even commanded to do it. And we can take great hope in knowing that this mandate will indeed come to completion because he is blessing it and the blessing of God is aiding it. God is working for this. We have God on our side. This is the whole, actually the whole reason why we join in this is because God is the one leading the way in the first place. So it's overwhelming, but we have a confidence. We have a confidence in a great big God that has a great and glorious vision for himself and his church. And I do hope that coming out of this weekend coming out of this this sermon and this whole missions week, that we will have affections as a people to join in the song of the Lamb with every tongue and tribe and people and nation. If you guys would just take a few minutes tonight, just turn off the TV and shut off the radio, get into a quiet place and picture in your mind what it would be like to see a throne risen up and Jesus Christ sitting on the throne, radiant and Picture a sports stadium. Have you ever gone to a sports stadium with thousands of people? And that being just a little tiny dot compared to the massive display of people around the throne praising and worshiping Christ, the risen Savior, Just take some moments and get a picture of that. And I hope that it will inflame your affections for seeing God glorified in all the nations. Because this is the direction we're headed if we are his worshipers. There will come a day when we will gather around this great and glorious throne. And it will be really powerful to think about millions of millions of people spread around the throne of Jesus Christ. Praising him with all of their might. That is, that That gets me excited. And I pray that if you are a worshiper of God, that you will take some time to fix your eyes and fix your affections on that. And I hope that it will give you energy and passion to see God exalted. Adam and Eve rebelled. When they were in the garden, they were supposed to go out, fill the earth. And what did they do? Uh, Eve likes the idea of becoming like God. God. Satan tempts her, you will become like God if you eat the fruit. Hmm, that sounds good. And Adam joins in. And instead of filling the earth with the great name of God, hey, let's become like God. And the people at the Tower of Babel, they rebelled. Let's make a great name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed throughout the entire earth. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. So God steps in and saves the day. And he keeps his promise. Like I said, he made a promise in Genesis 1. And he confuses the language and he scatters the nations abroad. Now I want you guys to revel in the glory of God here. He does something that's very amazing. Even in spite of man's rebellion and their evil, he makes that and he actually uses that as the vehicle to spread out the nations and to accomplish his purpose in Genesis 1. Isn't that amazing? Babel is the judgment of God. He comes down in judgment, but this judgment is the place from where he will spread his supremacy and manifest his glory throughout the entire earth. That's amazing to me. So in conclusion here, I want to draw all these things to a close. We've been focusing on Genesis 11, and then we have Genesis 1 over here, the mandate for all people. And then I want to kind of connect that to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So if you'd stay with me here just for a few more minutes, I want to draw all these things together. Connect the dots. Look at the progression of Genesis. You have in chapter 11, God disperses the nations, right? Fills, in, fills the earth out, and he puts inhabitants over all of the places on the globe. What's Genesis 12 then? Enter in Abraham, right? And the promise that God makes to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a good thing that Genesis 12 didn't come before Genesis 11, because all the families of the earth didn't really exist. God had to spread those out first, and then he comes to Abraham and he zeroes in on him, and he says, I will make you a blessing to the nations. And I think God already had a plan for all the nations, and the climax of this blessing, the climax of God's blessing in Abraham was in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the climax of it. And the reason why I say that is because if you follow the line of Abraham throughout the whole Bible, you will arrive in the New Testament, in the very first verse in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, that bridges the Old Testament and the New Testament together, says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, so the blessing of Abraham that God says, I will bless the families of the earth in you, God blesses the families of the earth in Abraham in Jesus Christ. And this is how it how it works. Or before I point that out, I just want to point out, Genesis 11, God comes down to the earth, and he visits the people, and he comes down in judgment. That was judgment. But in Jesus Christ... God comes down to the earth in blessing to fulfill the promise that was made to Abraham. And this is how it works. So if you follow me here, we're almost done. Hebrews one 3 we we're talking about Jesus Christ now in the person of Jesus Christ on the earth. It says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, which means that If you want to get a picture of the glory of God in mankind on the earth, you must look to Jesus Christ. If you're wondering about the invisible God and the glory that he has, look to Jesus Christ and you will see the exact imprint of God and his glory. John 1.14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in John 14.9, Whoever has seen me, this is Jesus talking, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So God comes down to the earth in the person of Jesus Christ and he externalizes his glory. He gives you a picture of his glorious nature on the earth. And Jesus perfectly reflects and reveals the glory of God on the earth. And because God is working, Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, To be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. All of you right now, if you are believers, what God is working in your life to do is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he wants to fill the earth with his glory. Jesus Christ reveals and reflects the glory of God. And therefore... The way that you can reflect the glory of God on the earth is to be conformed into the image of His glory. So that's why Jesus and God are on the move to conform us as believers to His image. And when Jesus, this is how it all relates to the Great Commission, He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I think what He's essentially saying there Is go and conform all the nations into my image so that my glory would be represented in all the places of the world that is inhabited by the nations. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded them, all that I have commanded you. So go and conform the nations to my image so that the glory of God would be spread over all the earth. And this is why we emphasize discipleship so much at this church. We love discipleship. And this is why we must embrace, as a church body, in some way or another, the discipleship of the nations so that we can spread a passion for the supremacy of God In all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that your word would linger now in our hearts and in our minds. And I ask, Father, that you would do a work. Help us to understand. And I pray that if it would be your will, that you would convict us to see how we need and we must, as Christians, as worshipers of you, to take part in your global purpose, and that is to raise up worshipers from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. I pray that it would be an increasing passion of ours and an increasing commitment of ours to spread your glory throughout the entire earth. And I do pray that you would do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we can imagine at this church so that when we are all in the grave... This church would be thriving and sending out missionaries, Lord, adopting people from all peoples of the earth, Lord, and you name it. I don't know exactly how it would work, but I just pray, Lord, that this little church right now would have a massive global impact over the coming decades, should you tarry. So I do pray, Lord, that you would come now, fill us with your Holy Spirit, and go with us as we try to implement these things into our lives. I praise you for being with us and I praise you for giving us your word and I praise you for calling us into your family and making us worshipers of your great name. In the precious and matchless name of Jesus Christ, I pray all these things. Amen.